0: Hi, I'm Sarah
1: and I'm Courtney and this is the dance better podcast this is our platform to shed some light on the impact that ballet training has on the mental health of both current and former dancers together with some amazing experts we're discovering what things dancers can do to help counteract some of those habits and ideas that might not be serving them So keep listening to hear real stories from real dancers, mental health professionals, and many more to help you dance better. Hey, everyone. Today, Courtney and I spoke with Chloe Angel.
0: Chloe is the author of the new book, Turning Point, How a Generation of Dancers is Saving Ballet from Itself, which is out now. Chloe has written about politics and pop culture for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, Jezebel, Cosmo. Marie Claire and many others. Chloe has a PhD in media studies and her dissertation was about romantic comedies and the lessons they teach women about love, sex, and feminism. She's a former editor at Feministing and a former senior front page editor at HuffPost. And she was also the founding deputy opinion editor at HuffPost. She is currently a contributing editor at MarieClaire.com And Chloe is from Sydney, Australia. We just wanted to mention that Courtney and I are not mental health professionals. And anything you hear us say on the show today are just things from our lives, what worked, what didn't work, and none of that should be considered medical advice. If any of the things we share resonate with you, we do encourage you to talk to your doctor or click the link in our show notes to find the best healthcare professional for you.
1: We also want to mention anything we say in this podcast is a reflection of our dance experience as a whole and not any one teacher, studio, or company. Secondly, the opinions shared by our guest in this episode are those of our guests and their personal experience from their individual viewpoint. Experiences and opinions shared while cathartic are also for a mutual purpose to aid in opening a dialogue about making experiences better for artists everywhere. Chloe's book is a fascinating read about gender and race in the ballet culture and how it affects dancers everywhere. Her message is a powerful one. And this was such an insightful conversation today and we are so honored to share it with you all. Here you go.
0: Hi everyone, hey Courtney. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm great, I'm great. You guys, we are so glad to welcome the amazing author, Chloe Angel to the show today. Hi, Chloe. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> Hi, Chloe. We're so excited Hi, to talk to you today. <laughs> it's great to be
2: here.
0: Yeah, Chloe, we are just so excited to have you here. It's this is perfect timing um, for your book that's been released. I own a copy of it already. I was on the list and I have been enjoying it so much. Um, I think I even told you earlier it actually has sparked some really interesting conversations with my husband who's no relation to the, the ballet world at all. He's a scientist. So um, it's been a really, really nice conversation starter for, for at the end of my day. So it's been great.
2: I'm um, so glad to hear that.
0: Yeah, so Chloe, we would love to hear first about your background or your relationship to ballet, um, you know, start to finish, kind of how that developed. And also, how you became the writer that you are today?
2: I grew up in Sydney, Australia, taking ballet classes from before my memory starts. Um, there are lots of photos of me in my childhood wearing, you know, wearing a tutu in a completely inappropriate situation, which I think is pretty common uh, for kids who grew <laughs> up in ballet. Just so in love with it that you didn't want to take the costume off, if you, unless yeah. unless someone forced you and I uh, took a brief detour out of uh, out of dancing and into fairly serious gymnastics Um, and when I came back uh, shortly after I hit puberty I was told between puberty but especially gymnastics my body had been reshaped in ways that I was told were incompatible with serious ballet training and maybe with any kind of serious dance training I had just developed the wrong muscles and the wrong way of moving and I had missed out on again, what I was told were really essential years of training in my youth. But I kept dancing and I fell in love with Broadway-style theater jazz. I found a teacher in Sydney who had um, danced Fosse style on Broadway and sort of fell in love with the idea of being able to sing and act and dance all at once. And then I fell in love again uh, with sociology when I went to college. And I danced all four years of college in in a campus dance company. But I found uh, I was really captivated by sociology, which to me sort of felt like being given a pair of x ray glasses and being able to see things about how the world worked that other people couldn't see. Um, and that also gave me a language to talk about, to describe phenomena that I had been experiencing in my life. Um, and that it, you know, to be told, well, actually, you know, there's an explanation for why that happens. It's a it's a widespread phenomenon. And here's a theorist who explained, you know, how, how that happened. And it just, it, you know, in the way that a lot of kids go away to college and just have their minds gently blown. Um, yeah. That's what sociology felt like to me. And it was sort of addictive. And, you know, it turns out that's really good preparation for journalism. You know, learning how to interview people, learning how to go out into unfamiliar spaces and observe, What's going on, and sort of explain it to an outsider, um, turns out to be really good preparation for journalism. And so I decided to <laughs> become the only thing that is less stable than being a Broadway dancer is being a freelance <laughs> feminist journalist. And that's what it's, what <laughs> what I decided to do.
0: I mean, it's working out from what from where I'm sitting. It's working out for you pretty well. So
2: <laughs> I've been I've been very lucky um I've also you know joined an industry that is in crisis um and sort of weathered a couple of those crises and uh it is you know it is it is tough going journalism is not easy um and neither is dancing
1: yeah yeah absolutely so Chloe tell us a little bit kind of what motivated you to start writing about inequality in ballet was there a spark there
2: there was. Um, I was at HuffPost um, doing, working on breaking news in 2016 and 2017, which, as I'm sure listeners remember, was a time of a lot of breaking news. Um, and uh, I started writing about ballet on the side, um, in part because I wanted to. I wanted to write about it. I was in. I was living in New York City in a place where there's so much ballet happening, and I thought, you know, this is a really great opportunity in part because, you know, to my earlier point about journalism being sort of continually in crisis, I had spent a long time as a freelancer and it is incredibly difficult to sell freelance stories about dance because it's considered a niche topic. It's incredibly difficult for an to get an editor to spend their limited freelance budget on a ballet story. And so once I was sort of comfortably employed and installed at A mainstream publication that didn't have to pay me extra to work on ballet stories. I decided to work on ballet stories in my spare time, but because it was a mainstream publication and not, you know, Dance Magazine or Point Magazine, I had to find a way to make ballet understandable and accessible to a non-dance audience, to a general audience who, you know, maybe has some familiarity or sort of curiosity about ballet, but they weren't they weren't coming to huffpost.com to read about like David Holberg. Um, (laughs) But I really wanted to write about David Holberg. I really wanted to write about about ballet. And so um, that meant that I had to figure out how to make ballet coverage accessible to people who weren't going to see ballet, weren't taking ballet classes, et cetera. So what, what my editor and I settled on was that I was going to write about ballet as a workplace. And write about dancers as workers, which of course they are, um, mm-hmm. and so that meant I wrote stories about uh, what it's like to be the union rep in your ballet workplace, or what it's like to work with your boyfriend or husband or ex you know, ex ex husband or ex wife, which we know is really common in in uh-huh. ballet companies. Um, what it's like to be the only black girl at your workplace which you know is common in lots of workplaces and especially in ballet and so I was writing these stories and then it was the story about David Holberg actually um, that made me think that there might be a book here Um, I was writing about the astronomically high rates of bullying that boys who dance experience specifically because they dance, um, which is something that Holberg writes about at length in his wonderful memoir that came out in 2017. And I I distinctly remember saying to my editor, yeah, yeah, I'll get this done in 1,200 words. No worries, get in, get out, get it done. And like 2,800 words later, I was like, I'm so sorry. There's so much here. There's so much to explain to a non-dance audience about how it is that ballet became associated with femininity, which results in boys who do it being bullied, you know, in very specifically misogynistic and homophobic ways. And there's just so much ground to lay before I could even get to the stories of the boys that that I had interviewed or the men that I had interviewed about their experiences of bullying, that I started to think, you know, I think there could be a book here. And indeed, you could write an entire book about the experiences of bullying um, in boys mm-hmm. in boys who dance, um, but it is not a coincidence that that chapter turns out to be the longest and sort of the most complicated, and <laughs> for me the most satisfying to write. It sits at the heart of the book, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and it you know I, I believe by word count it is the longest one, and that's that's that tracks.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for sure.
0: That's so fascinating. Um, I myself am in the midst of the book, like I said earlier, and it's interesting what you, when you talk about entering the world of sociology in college, because I'm a 38 year old woman who has had a relationship since with ballet, since I was three. And I got two chapters into the book and realized that you were doing for me what college did for you in that sociological sense, that there's so many topics that my mind has been blown and, and gently, I hope. Gently. Yes, more. gently, <laughs> gently. Yeah. And, and that's that's one thing I have to say as well is that it's written from a standpoint of not judgment but curiosity. And that is the cornerstone of this podcast. Um, that's really it wasn't to start off with and courtney can speak to this as well but like the more people we interview and the more topics we cover that have to do with mental health we've discovered that we have to remove judgment from the situation and just come at the problem with curiosity because that's the only way effective change can really happen
1: so i mean <laughs> one of one one of the things
2: i've i've heard over and over from people is that as they if if they grew up in ballet you know if they've had a relationship with ballet since they were 3 and as that relationship should have sort of either changed shape or in some cases was ruptured in a really painful way and then they had to sort of process and sort of understand what that relationship meant to them that it's been sort of piecemeal you know they had a they had a moment where they're like oh that way that that teacher made me feel about my body, you know, in hindsight, that probably wasn't great. Or, oh, the fact that my ballet school was entirely white, like that is maybe a problem. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
2: much of it is, so much of that happens on your own and sort of piece by piece. And one thing I really hope this book can do is have it happen all at once. Like, here's all the stuff. I put it all in one place for you. Yeah. And also, leaves people feeling like they are not alone in that anymore but there are lots of people who who are going through or have gone through that experience as well um because i do think that you know coming out of if you've grown up in ballet and you've you know had it's been a meaningful relationship then that relationship being sort of ruptured or changing shape in a really upsetting way is just profoundly isolating and i hope that this book you know it's such a cliche but I, i i hope this book can make people feel less alone and I also hope it can make that process a little more efficient rather than you know dribs and drabs I hope it can just be like oh here is all the information you need to understand what just happened to you Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah I love it absolutely I don't know I mean Sarah can definitely chime in here too but we've shared between us even just our our experiences having those that little light bulb moment on our experience and like oh having that moment of introspection and reflection and like okay what what really happened there but to really piece it all together and like you're saying to really lay it all out there I mean I'm I'm so excited for it thank (laughs) you it's so necessary it's so necessary it's just yes I mean one thing that
2: you know sociology and journalism have in common is that they are often explaining a small insular world to the people outside of it and also one way to really understand that small insular world, if you grew up inside of it, is to try and explain it to people outside of it and have them explain it back to you. I mean, there were times when I sort of, I would have a conversation with someone from inside the ballet world. And, you know, you know, a dancer would tell me, you know, well, this is why I had to dance on my torn hamstring because, you know, and then they'd give me a reason that to me, as a ballet person, like, kind of made sense. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. artistic director would say, you know, well, I have to I have to end the contracts of these people who are not like keeping themselves in physical shape, who are not quote fit for my quote aesthetic <laughs> because, you know, and they give me a reason that, you know, for to a ballet person sounds, I guess, reasonable. Mm-hmm. And then I would, you know, leave my office and go tell it to my editor, who's not a ballet person, or go tell it to my fiance, who's also not a ballet person. And they, as outsiders, they would say, that sounds pretty messed up. That sounds not great. And I would have Mm -hmm. to say, and I, you know, my instinct would be to explain to them like why it made sense. And instead I just sort of learned to sit with that really valuable outsider perspective of, no, that sounds really messed up and maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Instead of Mm -hmm. instinctively explaining to them why the status quo has to be maintained.
1: Yes. Oh, there's so much right there. I mean, just, just that that piece of voicing what you have experienced to that other person and getting their, getting the, the their, the feedback of, Oh, oh wait, That's wait, not normal. What? <laughs> That's not normal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think That's, Courtney and I both have time, had sometimes. many conversations
0: with our husbands about that. And they've just been like, you did what now? You know?" Yeah. You, you
2: did what at age 12? Like uh-huh, they asked yeah. what
0: of you at 14.
2: Yeah. And you know, I think. Or said what said- to you. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, in a, in a really sort of insular and elite culture, there is almost, there becomes a sort of a value attached to that response. Like the more someone says like, Oh, that sounds like a lot for a 10 year old. And you'd be like, mm-hmm. yeah, it is. Isn't that great? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> like Aren't I amazing and, and special? <laughs> and like, and actually, I maybe you should listen to the outsider. It's not that they don't understand. It's that, or, or at least it's the, their sort of lack of comprehension is actually a very useful tool.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. this reminds me of when we've had um, some different professionals on, but this opinion of if dancers should seek a therapist who understands dance, or if you're a therapist should be someone who doesn't come from the world of dance. Mm. And that was definitely something for me after I left the industry, so to speak, having a therapist who had no clue about dance and to have that professional perspective on mental health, but also to be like, I'm sorry, what? you know like having that oh yeah I see that I see it in so many ways interpersonal relationships your therapist that you see there's there's so many benefits to just hearing them out without getting defensive and you know taking your pride aside for well yes I was treated awful isn't that wonderful like sorry what (laughs) is that what we're excited about here I think so (laughs) Badge of honor
2: yeah and and also, it can be really helpful to have someone, I, you know, whether it's a mental health professional or someone else who sort of who doesn't require the translation, mm-hmm. um, who doesn't require you to translate, you know, or explain what it is that your your body or your soul went through um, in in the name of ballet. Um, but yeah, that that sort of uncomprehending outsider perspective is incredibly valuable. And part of what I wanted to do with with this book was sort of was to be both, you know. I know lots of people will read this book because they are ballet people, um, but I also know lots of people will read this book because they are interested in racial justice or gender equity or workers' rights or mental health, and you know they just happen to be reading about those things in the context of ballet. Um, and so I was always sort of keeping both my my status as both kind of an insider but also an outsider, and also the, re- the you know the imagined the different kinds of imagined readers. Who I was speaking to. And so I actually remember having a conversation with my editor and saying, okay, what are we assuming the baseline knowledge is? Do they know, does the does the average reader of this book know what a plie is? Do they know what a tondu is? And we decided they know plie and tondu, but I'll have to explain what a fondue is. And I was like, yeah. great, I can work with that. <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> that's so cute. I love
0: it. So here's the thing, is that I don't know, this might sound a little dramatic but from everything that I have read over my lifetime, observed, experienced, and then through this podcast, it really seems like ballet is dying. It's headed for a disastrous end unless we do something to turn it around. So coming from that perspective, that very dramatic perspective, if we could just do a couple of things, let's say triage, the emergency Mm -hmm. things to really help ballet to make that turn what are the main areas without getting too deep into the book obviously but what are the main areas you would say that need the most attention right now to save ballet from itself
2: I don't actually think that ballet's death is going to be the sort of like explosive cataclysmic it's here one day and then it's dead the next I think it's it's sort of something that is already in process, which is sort of like a slow limping, degrading, uh, like wimp and not a bang kind oh. of death, you know, death by inaccessibility, death by irrelevance, death by excluding the kinds of people who could help it to flourish and, and survive. And so to me, what that says is, um, first of all, like if we're gonna triage, let's root out like the stuff that is obviously like criminal and horrifying, right? That means like sexual abuse, um, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, violations of workers' rights, um, things that are like obviously against the law and like actively endangering people, particularly children. Um, So that's, that's the first thing. Um, And, you know, no one wants to think about how staggeringly common child sexual abuses. No one wants to think that it happens in their own communities, in their own schools, in their own, you know, activities or cultures. Um, but it does. And so that's, you know, that that to me is is the first thing. Um, and and you know, part and parcel of that is building a culture that um that supports survivors, that supports accusers, um, that makes it really clear to Children and to young people, um, what their rights are, and that their their stories and their voices will be taken seriously. Um, <laughs> but look, one of the reasons that um, sexual abuse and harassment flourish is that um, it's much easier for people to you know for people to abuse their power when there are huge power dynamic power differentials, when there are really mm-hmm. tilted power dynamics, and that is just really true in ballet. Um, There are massive gaps in power. And so the sort of the bigger, more difficult cultural work beyond just like spotting predators and prosecuting them, which is hard enough already, the bigger, more difficult cultural work is going to be flattening, flattening out power hierarchies so that there aren't these massive gaps in power, particularly between girls, particularly for girls, um, who are so often made to feel in ballet like they are disposable, because there are so many of them. And, you know, if yeah. they aren't willing to make the sacrifices asked of them, well, there are 12 more girls lined up behind them. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a that's a pretty big one. Um, and the other one is, you know, getting really, really honest about ballet's white supremacy problem, getting really honest about the fact that um, ballet remains stubbornly white, um, not only in, you know, who gets to dance, but in who gets to choreograph and teach and run companies and sort of make the big decisions that shape the future of ballet. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there is such a tendency particularly in media, but in other places as well, to focus on the few dancers who break through, the few dancers of colour who are the exception to the rule, um, instead of focusing on the rules, you know, instead of looking at the the whiteness of ballet. You know, we talk yeah. so much about dancers who break barriers and we talk about the ones doing the breaking and not so much about the barriers and who's enforcing those barriers and who benefits from yeah. those barriers staying up.
0: Yeah. For sure. I feel like all along we keep saying, okay, we've got to do something, we've got to do something. But then it's like, what is that something? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I think it can be really frustrating for people who, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, but talk to people who feel like, you know, dancers, we've been groomed from age five that we have no power. And Mm -hmm. so it's really difficult for, people who are still in the ballet world who are actively dancers choreographers whatever but also people who like Courtney and I who are officially retired we still have all of that baggage left over that we don't have any power to do anything and Mm -hmm. so when we started this podcast not even a year ago it was back in October we had so many conversations where we were like can we do you know not that we're making this massive change or anything but like it's we're at least talking about things. And so I think that can be a really, really challenging thing for for any dancer out there who's been groomed from such a young age that they have no power and no say and no control over anything um, to examine those barriers and and start to ask why.
2: Well, and the act of talking itself is such a sort of a, a powerful contradiction of what it is that dancers are taught to do, which is not to talk. Um, you know which is to that the ideal dancer is sort of obedient and silent and um, follows instructions without much regard to whether or not that causes them pain or discomfort Um, and you know for me the the real contradiction is that at this you know if you say that to, to to some people in ballet they'll say no 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 dancers are artists and they express themselves with their bodies and you know I sort of think you can't you can't put children in a highly disciplined, regimented environment in which they are mostly told to be quiet and obedient, and then, at age eighteen, say, "Well, you're a professional artist now, so go out and express yeah. yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure how how you're how you expect those young people to adapt to that complete reversal of mm-hmm. expectations um, and you know to produce artists who can, really sort of speak and express themselves in all the ways that they should be able to with their bodies, with their art, with their voices. Um, And, um, you know, I think the act of the act of talking is actually really powerful because, you know, so many dancers feel alone and isolated. And if no one, if they have no one to talk to, then why would they think anything differently? You know, they they will assume that they're the only ones going through this because no one's saying anything about it.
1: Yeah. I think there's such a connection here too, between just that underlying notion right now of using your voice, empowering dancers to use their voice. That sentence, that empowerment can be used for so much of this change we want to see, I think. You know, if you need to set boundaries with your own teacher of what's appropriate and what's not, if you need to speak up to your parents about what's happening in the studio to you, if you need to you know, go talk to your board because you want change to happen at your company and the people in charge aren't doing anything. And you need to go straight to where the dollars are coming from, right? You have to have that empowerment to use your voice. But yeah, like Sarah said, it's it took, it took, and it still sometimes hits us off guard that we do, not only can we use our voice, but like we even have a voice in the first place. And I, yeah. I say that like a little like joking now, because it seems so obvious having gone through the work, but it took work to just sit and speak. And I, I mean, everyone has different things for me. I am more, you know, holistically minded, that kind of thing, but like, like pressure on your throat, even just like the idea of speaking and it feeling so impossible. Like there's literally something holding you back. That's not keeping, not allowing you to speak and share and to be able to work through well where is that coming from what in the world why do i feel that way about my voice you know there's, there's that curiosity again right ask, start asking the questions
2: yeah and you know i also think it it does i i would be doing dance as a, a disservice if i just said speak up use your voice ask for what you want throw a question to the wind who cares because we know that the ballet world does not work like that we know that there are repercussions and often punishments for people who do speak up Um, Mm -hmm. and so you know when dancers don't it's not necessarily because they don't want to or they don't think they can it's that they understand that there are risks um, and that those risks might not be worth taking i mean there are so many reasons um that you can not succeed in ballet right there are, you have to like win the genetic and socioeconomic lottery and then you have to work harder than anyone else and then you have to be really lucky and be in the right place in the right time. And you also, you know, in a lot of cases have to be like the right skin color and the right hair texture and the right height and, you know, just so many reasons um why would you add you know she's a troublemaker or he's a complainer or you know that dancer is sort of not sufficiently grateful to be here which is a code word that you hear about black dancers a lot they're not grateful Mm. enough for this favor that we've done them um why would you add you know mouthy complaining troublemaker to the list of reasons why people could deny you a promotion or a job or a you know or a spot in a program, it's there. There are real risks, and I think it's important to sort of to recognize them and not make dancers feel any additional shame for not speaking yeah. up because
1: yeah.
2: you know yeah. that they're, they're, they're smart, they can read the writing on the wall, and they understand yeah. what the risks are.
1: Yeah, I, I just saw something earlier today. It was on Instagram, but it just reminded me when you were talking about that. Right, that that take that judgment piece out of it. It was something that said, if they don't pay your bills, they don't get an opinion, right? Like we can talk about all of this, but at the end of the day, all of these dancers have bills to pay. Like they have to assess that risk for themselves for keeping their water running, buying their groceries. If they're in a company that is treating them in a way they don't like, they have a contract, they have bills, like it's definitely not always a, well, okay, bye, I'm just gonna go to the next one. That, That opportunity isn't always very rarely i would say even ever that easy to just leave one day and go to the next that's just not the way the you know ballet industry is constructed with those annual contracts you know
2: uh, which is why it was important to me to write about you know ballet dancers as workers and ballet companies mm-hmm. as a workplace in that like Ooh. we all feel that about our jobs <laughs> like we all Ooh. you know like we all work for a living we all work to keep to, to pay rent And so the fact that it's an art, the fact that it's, you're like living the dream, you know, the fact that you are like deeply emotionally enmeshed with your work doesn't change the fact that, you know, these people pay your bills.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So talking about this change that needs to occur, um, I would love your perspective on where do you think this permanent and effective change is going to start? Does it start from the ground up, you know, from students and parents Putting pressure on the higher ups, or does it come from the top down? Does policy change and company change happen and then it trickles down to the students?
2: It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, I think each and every one of us who cares about the future of ballet or who cares about the well being of dancers needs to figure out what our piece of this work is. Um, and that's everyone from, you know, recreational teachers to parents of serious ballet students to people running the biggest companies in the in the country and the world it you know it takes all of us to save us Um, and each of us has a a different form of 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 power Um, and some of us have more than others and um, you know one thing I really love the subtitle of my book which is how a new generation of dancers is saving ballet from itself. I really love it. And also, I don't want anyone to think that I am putting this work solely on the rising generation, you know, solely on Gen mm-hmm. Z. I am I use the word the term generation sort of loosely because there are lots of people who are doing this work before this new generation came along and there will be more people who do it after and but You know, I'm so, I'm so sick of the like X group of young people will save us framing. You know, you see it with climate change. You see it with gun violence. You know, don't worry. This energetic group of young people will solve this problem they didn't create. And just like, don't worry. Like the kids have got it. Yeah. The the (laughs) The kids are great. Yeah, yeah, the kid the kids are great. The kids should not have to solve this problem on their own, even if they could, yeah. which I don't think they can. And that's not a knock on them. It's just, you know, you can't you can't solve you can't solve a problem this big all on your own. You know, it takes it mm-hmm. takes all of us to solve this.
0: Well, and it's also generational trauma too. So if we if we're traumatizing the children that are very small now, they're going to grow up to become part of the problem and not grow up to try to solve it
2: one thing someone asked me was, well, don't we just have to wait for the older generation uh, in the ballet world to die and then we'll be fine? And I sort of thought, well, first of all, that's kind of grim and forecloses the possibility that older people can change, which I believe they can. And secondly, that fundamentally misunderstands how ballet knowledge gets passed down. I mean, part of the like supposed glamour and like tradition of ballet is that you are part of a long line of people learning from people who learn from people who, le- you know, it all gets passed down. And it's not to say that like pedagogical approaches don't change or that our scientific understanding of the body and of of sports medicine hasn't advanced, because of course it has. But one thing I think about a lot is, uh, so I'm, I'm 33, I grew up in Sydney, uh, dancing uh, at an RAD school. And... My teachers in the 90s were, like, let's say they were 40, right? And so in that classroom, I was learning all the RAD exercises and the RAD technique. But I was also learning the teaching styles that, and sort of the attitudes towards ballet and the body that those teachers had inherited from their teachers, which means Mm -hmm. that unless they had really sat down and thought about what they had inherited and whether or not they wanted to replicate it with their kids. I'm sitting here in 2021 dealing with whatever 1960s stuff. Yeah. They taught me. And if I were to go on to be a teacher, unless I really sat down and thought about what are the values that were conveyed to me through that teaching? What are the assumptions that were embedded in that teaching? How did I learn to sort of approach the dancing body and like the very act of dancing at all from those teachers I would you know I'd be passing it down to kids who were born in you know 2010 and it's still the same 1960s stuff and so no we can't just wait for the older generation (laughs) to die because as long as we keep passing this stuff down through the generations they're never really dead
0: yeah and I think so many people are they do it inadvertently too because until the, the conversation becomes more mainstream and more exposed, then I think in my view, most people, most teachers, especially studio owners who are you know just crazy busy, they don't take the time or they don't have the time to just pause and do that, that introspection and that reflection. Um, but I mean, I think it is, I'm starting to see more and more people talking about
1: it, which is wonderful.
0: Honestly, there's not enough people in counseling right now.
1: (laughs) Therapy for everyone. It Um,
0: needs to be like, like everyone who ever was in ballet, like deserves to have an exit counselor, you know? I mean, there are (laughs)
2: definitely people, there are dance teachers who became dance teachers because they wanted to do it differently than the way it was done to them.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And then there are people who became dance teachers because they had what they think was a good, you know, what, they, what was a good experience for them. And they see no reason to sort of deviate from the way that they were taught. Um, one really smart woman I, who's writing I really like once said that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who say, I suffered and so you have to suffer as well. And there are people who say, I suffered and I don't ever want you to have to. And unfortunately, I think there are a lot more ballet teachers who fit into column A than mm-hmm. who fit into column B.
1: Yeah, Build character. It it builds character.
2: It makes you a better dancer. It prepares you for professional dance. life. You know, mm-hmm. it's you know it, it's it's actually good for you know there are there are a lot there's so much justification of suffering um, in dance and sort of glorification of suffering and you see that in everything from like the cliche of the you know the the photo on ballet Instagram. And versions of it always go around where it's like one pristine point shoe next Uh to the other like really messed up foot Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and like Mm -hmm. just the glorification of suffering and you know again like let me explain to you why this suffering is necessary and good and um i don't think it's acceptable to ask children to suffer just because, you know, it might result in a job someday. I actually don't think it's acceptable to ask children to suffer like ever.
0: Um,
2: (laughs) And it turns out that that saying suffering is bad actually is a pretty radical thing to say to a lot of ballet people, which suggests Mm -hmm. that there might be a cultural problem in ballet. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Yes. I was joking. I was it's joking with my is. editor that this, the subtitle should be suffering is bad, actually, and we can choose to prevent it.
0: Oh, my goodness. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I and I've said this before, but it, you know, if you took any any one particular situation where a child is suffering in ballet and and maybe you can speak to the gymnastics world, too. I don't know. But I would assume that if there's a lot there to unpack as well especially in light of all of the scandals that have recently you know been dealt with but um if you took any one of those situations and removed it from the context of ballet um and I've told the story before but as an example um Susie goes to school and her grade school teacher tells her oh you can't have lunch today you're too fat Let's just sit with what would happen to that teacher in public school. They yeah. would not have a job. They would not be allowed to work with children. There might be a lawsuit, um, any number of things, but yet we accept that as normal in any ballet class in any country around the world.
2: Mm. And yeah. the explanation, you know the explanation would be, well, ballet has you know aesthetic requirements that public mm-hmm. school doesn't have Mm -hmm. and you know one thing that i just really wanted to give myself permission to do in this book is to just keep asking but what if it wasn't that way or what if it didn't have to be that way like what if what if susie didn't have to be any particular kind of size to have a chance of succeeding in ballet what if we did not measure susie's success by you know her size and instead by her you know by her technique and by her artistry and I mean actually by her technique and artistry and not by her like line and how Lines. those technical components looked looked when completed on her body I mean as long as as long as ballet is allowed to sort of cloak itself in the language of sort of aesthetic um, and artistry those and tradition you know all three of those terms can be used to hide racism and transphobia and fat phobia and all kinds of other prejudices and dress them up
0: as something like great and beautiful (laughs) and just hold them up as a standard
2: and and make excuses for and make very reasonable and almost um desirable sounding excuses for them And so one thing I really wanted to do with this book is to just say, like, it does not have to be this way. It can be something different. And we have to give ourselves not just permission, but we have to push ourselves to imagine something different. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Change your eyes. Change your eyes. Change your perspective. Literally do do the internal work to be... Another cliche: to be the change you want to see in the world, right? You have to you have to adjust your own what you see is pleasing.
2: Because and that you know that goes that goes for for ballet goers as well. You know that mm-hmm. goes for the the people who go and watch ballet. Who one thing I think about a lot is you know I'm sitting here enjoying this ballet, but I know that a lot of those dancers are not properly nourished. I know that a lot of those dancers are dealing with like bone density issues and, you know, they're gonna have fertility problems and they're, you know, miserable or like can barely stand up in the wings um, after dancing because they are not, their bodies are not properly fueled. And one thing that I have to think about as a consumer, you know, as as a, a watcher of ballet is am I comfortable knowing that they're doing that partly for my benefit and knowing that those bodies if properly fueled would not look like a quote good ballet body knowing that if those bodies were properly fueled there would probably be flesh on them that like jiggled there would probably be bigger bodies in leotards and sort of thinking how would i feel about that i'd probably like I'd have to get used to it because I have a very fixed idea of what a good ballet body looks like. I would have to look that kind of fat phobia in the face and Mm -hmm. then get the hell over it. Yeah. Because the cost of not getting over it is dancers who are suffering and dancers who are not properly fueled and dancers who have mental health issues and dancers who like can't have babies if they want to. I mean, the costs are just too high for me to sit here, you know, for any ballet goer to sit there with their unexamined fat phobia just because they don't feel like seeing some jiggly bodies on stage. Get over it.
0: You know, I keep thinking, I keep my brain keeps circling back to this idea because we were talking before about how uh, dancers are supposed to be artists and they're supposed to express themselves through movement. But really a lot of times they're not treated like artists. They are treated like the medium for the art. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed to express themselves. So if we have these um, more open, you know, they're popping up all over the place, these dance collectives or, and some of them are classical, actually there's one in Indianapolis right now that's a classical ballet artist collective that has no hierarchy, you know, when we allow these things to happen, when we allow these pockets, you know, of actual artistry, what is coming out of that is just it's phenomenal because the eyes are being challenged. The preconceptions are being challenged and how much art has been discarded or not allowed to flourish because of all of these barriers throughout the years. It's mind blowing. I mean,
2: one of the sort of inevitable byproducts of, of a really elite and selective and exclusive art form is just massive amounts of loss massive amounts of absence because any time that you are sort of winnowing down and whittling away and making very strict rules about what's allowed you are leaving out so much and some of that is experienced as like a deep personal pain in the individual and some of it is like also experienced as a huge collective cultural loss dancers will never like artists will never get to watch dance dancers will never get to see ballets that will never get staged you know thoughts and ideas that will never get expressed in that medium. And what a loss for all of us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting over here getting a little bit emotional because like, like Sarah said, the um, this collective, that is here in Indianapolis that started one of my friends was a founding member. And I remember watching their show here. I am. I might get emotional, but it was last fall. And I just remember watching them dancing and it was like, It was the most freeing movement I'd seen in years. Like, you know, and it was just like, they are really, they're doing something in a way that, that I had not seen that personally even ever done before. But like, like she said, no hierarchy, like body acceptance, all the things sharing their art, sharing their movement, sharing their creativity. It was, It was profound in a way I wish it wasn't so profound. Like Mm. I wish that was our normal. And I wish there was so much more of that. And it didn't feel like this brave thing to go do that. Like I want it to just be like ah, want change.
2: And and I want it to happen without first the all of those people having to experience trauma and rejection. You know, I want that I want to cut out that middle part where they they experience whether they're required to suffer and then they do this yeah because if because if what you're describing were the norm then there would not be this part in the middle where you know dancers who don't have the right body or dancers who like demand to be treated equally are pushed out of ballet and then come back to it via this you know and i'm I'm thinking about um dance companies like ballets in new york city which is run by by katie pile which is this you know great Um, gender affirming, gender non-conforming.
0: We love Katie.
2: Yeah, Katie is amazing. And so many dancers come to Katie traumatized and working through very complicated feelings about ballet. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if Katie and ballets could just create their work without having to do all of the, like, reparative, restorative work because, you know, that trauma wasn't inflicted in the first place.
1: yeah. Ballet without trauma. What a
2: world it would be. I, You know, one thing one thing I really was not prepared for, because I myself don't have a ton of ballet trauma. I, I don't. You know, I was not, I wasn't serious about it. I wasn't in it long enough to to really have, like, one big ballet wound that I've been carrying around with me. I have a series of, like, small little cuts and nicks, but, you know, not, not a huge ballet wound. But there are so many people who, when I told them about what the book i was writing would just sort of unload their ballet trauma and there are so many people who are walking around telling themselves that they failed at ballet that they you know they didn't have the right insert whatever here (coughs) they didn't have the right body they didn't have the right mindset they didn't have what it took in some way and I hope that what this book does is to help them make sense of that experience and to understand that maybe they didn't fail a ballet, that maybe ballet failed them, right? A culture failed them, a system failed them and that they can let some of that shame go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and once that healing process starts, um and when they're in the middle of the healing process if they feel so called to come back to ballet that there are places where you're welcome you know we just talked to uh georgia canning of balanced ballerina just the other day fellow aussie (laughs) um we're everywhere yeah (laughs) And she has just a, a wonderful adult, huge adult ballet program that's super inclusive. So, I mean, if there are people out there who are reading your book and who are maybe going through some therapy and who are recovering from those wounds and, and feel like they want to move like that again, there, there's definitely places out there that are that are doing it right, for sure.
2: And And if they come back, it should be on their own terms. And ballet is damn lucky to have them. I mean... Yeah people keep asking me like, what makes you hopeful about what's happening in ballet right now? And some of it is things like, you know, what Katie's doing and some of it is like the potential for real change that you see at the sort of the really elite companies. And part of it is the the possibility that people will leave. You know, that people will say, I love this thing. It does not love me back the way I deserved to be loved. I don't have to stay in an, in a relationship where I'm not being treated with dignity and respect. I'm out, and like that's valid too. And you like you are allowed yeah. to leave, and you are allowed to stay gone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like any any abusive relationship. You know, it's very similar. It's Very similar because we've been gaslighted, we've been groomed, we've been fill in the blank you know for so so many years some of us you know
2: and then to be told that if it failed it was you know if it your ended fault. it was your fault yeah because ballet was right and you were wrong Uh
0: huh. because it's this however long hundreds of years tradition hanging over everyone you know and
2: when has doing things the traditional way ever yeah. been a mistake
0: when has that worked out for us well, so talking about dancers who feel stuck, and, and right now we're speaking to, it can be multi-generational. It can be kids who love ballet, but they're not in a great environment, and there's not another decent school nearby. It could be the dancer who's stuck in that year contract, and they, they have no choice but to stay there and tough it out for the next year, um, or even someone who's in a college program that's not a healthy environment and they're feeling the, the financial pressure to stay, mm. you know, cause they've already paid for it. So what can we say to people who feel stuck so that they can start advocating for themselves and start feeling unstuck and, and examine those boundaries, those uh, barriers too.
2: I think there's something really powerful in knowing that you are not the problem and that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But being able to identify, like, actually, there's nothing wrong with my body. Actually, I'm not crazy to think that, you know, my teacher should not be talking to me this way. Um, to to know that, to know at least what the problem is, um, and that it's probably not you, I think is sort of, I always think of it as like a little like a little warm glowing thing inside of you that like, you know, keeps you warm when it's really cold outside. Like, I know I'm not crazy. I know I'm not the problem here. And again, doesn't solve the problem doesn't get you out of that program or out of that job. Um, but I do think it is a way to sort of, um, to safeguard your own, your own mental health, um, and your own sense of self. Um, and it also allows you to ask follow-up questions like, okay, um, is it worth changing myself to fit in here or you know what what should i be doing to like remove myself from the situation if that's if that's feasible for me or are there perhaps other people around me who feel this way and can i create meaningful connections with with those people so that i feel less alone um but you know that's it that Those are all really tough situations to be in. And I don't, I don't think there is an easy fix. Um, There are, there are, there are coping mechanisms, but it's, it's hard to imagine an easy fix in those, in those spots.
0: Yeah. I love the idea of finding people who feel the same as you do, because there's a lot of power in commiserating with someone who is going through what you're going through, but also that's sort of how, that's sort of how the change has to happen. You know, you, you strengthen numbers, you find someone and, Maybe you go talk to the Dean of your, of the music department or, or whatever, you know, it is. Um, But yeah, that's, that's so powerful. Um, So we love asking this question and we've gotten some really fun answers. So if you could, I would say, go into a time machine Mm -hmm. and take yourself back to, let's say, take yourself back to the point where you had come back to ballet and you were told that your body was not enough or, you know, in, in that moment. Knowing what you know now and feeling the feelings you have now, what would you tell yourself as a young dancer?
2: I think I would say stop torturing yourself. Stop feeling bad about the fact that you don't look in the mirror the way you think a dancer is supposed to look that this movement looks different on your body than it does on I'm going to say Janie Taylor because I had the New York City Ballet playbill the year that that she was on the cover of it yeah. I had that stuck up on my wall you know in 2001 <laughs> when I was when I was a kid um mm-hmm. it's going to look different on your body and that's good and any energy that you spend trying to make it look the same is energy you could be you could be spending on something joyful that makes you that makes you feel whole and happy and special instead of feeling undeserving and feeling yeah. shame. I would also say, and this is something that um, uh, a really really great ballet influencer, Minnie Lane, says on TikTok all the time: ballet is morally neutral. I wish someone had given me that language when i you know in 2001 when i was 12. ballet is morally neutral you know it doesn't mean that you having good ballet technique doesn't mean anything except that you have good ballet technique doesn't mean that you're a good person or a good mm. woman or that you're doing femininity properly it just means you've got a nice batman tondo like that's it that's all it's yeah. it's morally neutral and i think you know so much of the because the idea of the ballerina is so wrapped up in a very particular idea of femininity failing at ballet doesn't just feel like failing at ballet it feels like failing at womanhood and that's that's a sort of a shame that that people carry around for a really long time long after they've decided that they want to succeed at ballet that that extra failure hangs around for a long time
0: yeah
1: don't i know it oh. yeah so um before we head out go ahead and plug where can our listeners find your book uh where can they find you on social media go ahead and plug wherever you want them to find you
2: yeah you can buy turning point anywhere you buy books um the hard copy is available in the us now it will be available in the uk on the 20th of may and then the australian edition will be out on the 13th of july um And if you are a dance parent or a dance student or a dance teacher, and you want to bring me or the book to your dance school, you can do that. I'm doing a tour of dance schools all over the country. Um, And it's a a free virtual event that my publisher has made super easy for dance schools to put on. So um, you can find more information about that at chloesangel.com. that's c h l o e s a n g y a l dot com, um, And you can find me on Instagram at chloe.angel.writes.
0: And we will awesome. plug all that stuff for you guys. We'll link everything down in the show notes as well. So it's all clickable
1: and easily findable. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Chloe. It's so wonderful to talk to you and get to hear all the things. I took, I took notes and I'm just, I'm excited to listen back. Yes. Thank Thank you you so much for your time. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Hey, Sarah. How are you feeling after that wonderful interview? (laughs) (laughs) So, so good. You guys, you have to,
0: you just have to buy this book. It is so powerful. I mean, really talking to Chloe has been amazing today because I I really kind of fangirled a little bit. I got to see the the person behind the words, you know, and her message is so, so powerful and it's relatable to anyone in the ballet community, anyone.
1: Yeah, one of the things that she said that I just found so, kind of gives me goosebumps now, even just reading it off my paper. I, you know, I was taking notes, Uh, but she said it takes all of us to save us. And the fact that she wrote this book for anyone, you know, regardless of your level of what level of your relationship to ballet is, whatever that looks yeah. like for you, whether you have one, whether you don't, the fact that the book is written to everyone, for everyone to understand, for all, and it, for it to be a one-stop shop of sorts for breaking down all the junk going on right now. All in those the boundaries. Those barriers. Yeah. Just really like letting yourself get immersed into her writing and work through it. Do the reflection, do the, allow yourself to grow. So, so good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today, guys. We really hope you enjoyed this episode today with Chloe. If you did, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating interview on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and share your podcast with your people to help us get the word out.
0: And we might even read one of your reviews or comments on our show. So watch out for that. Also, if you have any questions, particular topics you'd like us to cover, or guests you'd like to hear from, you can email those to us at dancebetterpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dancebetterpodcast.
1: To catch us in our own lanes, you can connect with me over on Facebook in Strong and Struggling Millennial Women. You can find it directly on Facebook, or the link is in my Instagram bio, which is at Court Ulrich, and it's linked down in our show notes. We're talking all about how to level up your relationship with your body image, your emotional health, and your self-worth. And you can follow
0: me on Instagram at Tech Ballet for more information on my virtual ballet programs where I integrate mindfulness work and injury prevention into each class. We approach solid technique training from a place of curiosity and not judgment. Whether you're gearing up
1: for auditions or coming back to the bar from a long break, all are welcome. Thank you so much for listening today, guys. We will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.